Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about something that I've been trying to get Chris to talk about for literally years. We're going to talk about Uber and Lyft. And the ways that they work in our society, the ways they work as a technology, the way they work for individuals, for companies, for riders. We're just going to take a whole big long look at the Uber and Lyft thing. It's really interesting from a variety of angles, particularly if you're thinking about technology or ethics, which is pretty much what we do here. <laughs> so the reason that we were able or that I was able to convince Chris to finally do an episode on Uber is that Chris was the lucky recipient of both an Uber and Lyft ride recently. For those who don't know, Uber and Lyft are ride-sharing companies, which are basically coming in and uh, taking the taxi industry apart. You sign up to be a driver, and you use your own car, and you get connected on their app and riders request rides via an app and you drop people off where they want to go and they you get paid and they pay uber which gets or lyft and uber or lyft gets some money and you the driver gets some money and the person gets a ride in something that isn't a taxi and everybody goes away and to be clear i wanted to talk about this for a while too i just didn't feel like i had anything to say but last week i was traveling and i thought well might as well take a lift. And then once I had taken a lift to the airport, I thought, well, might as well take an Uber home from the airport. So I did both. And it was a great experience. Both of them were just fine in terms of taking a ride and they were reasonably priced. It was also informative in that things Stephen and I had both speculated about and read from the outside were confirmed in a number of ways. So we thought we'd talk about it, talk about my experience, and then talk a bit about some of the bigger picture issues that may not get highlighted by one person's experience. Right. So Chris has been in Uber and Lyft. I actually own a car, so <laughs> I, I don't use Uber or Lyft, which is one of the things that makes me so interested in this is that this is something that I would almost never use except if I were like Chris was traveling and didn't have any other means of, of getting around. But most of the time, 90% of the time, I ne would never use this service and would never think about either taxis or Uber or Lyft. Right. It's certainly more of a thing in less spread out cities. We both live in the greater Raleigh area, and Raleigh is a pretty mm -hmm. spread out city where most people mm -hmm. have as many cars as they have adults in the family. But That's true. I took a lift to the airport from the coffee shop where I had been working that day when I took off and headed to Colorado for a friend's wedding last Friday and chatted with the guy over. He was a really interesting guy named Mohammed from India. He's paying for his family not only here but also in india with this job he actually works a nine-to-five job and then when he gets off from the office he drives uber or i'm sorry he drives lyft from 5 to 11 p.m and then he goes home sleeps gets up and does the same thing the next day guy works hard uh so it was interesting talking to him about how he got into it he just heard about it from people in the area he's in the it world so he's got a bit more information that way anyway and just thought hey i've got this car i'm trying to pay off i'm trying to support relatives back in india i'm trying to take care of my own growing family here and there are some communal expectations in his culture that you support your family if you can so he is and does 
had a lot of respect for him coming away from that conversation because he's working hours that just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Coming back from the airport, I rode with a, a guy named Eric who apparently drove cabs for 15 years before he switched to Uber. And he said it was a no-brainer for him and a whole bunch of his friends as soon as they heard about it because the pay's better. They've already got their own cars, so they're not dealing with paying the taxi company for that. And basically, it came out as a win-win for him. He's making better money. He's got lower overhead, and he enjoys it. So experience-wise, they were pretty much the same. Both of them were great drivers, very comfortable in the cars. Both of them were good to chat with, enjoyed the ride. Both of them did everything you'd expect. They were a reasonable price. Long and short of it was, from a service perspective, I expect I'd be very happy taking either one of them anywhere I went from here. So it's really interesting when you think about the relationship that both of those drivers had to the company. Mm -hmm. One of them didn't have previous commercial driving experience, and one of them had a lot of commercial driving experience. And that's part of the problem that people see with Uber and that Uber doesn't see as a problem. (laughs) And that's one of the fundamental issues that makes Uber and Lyft so interesting to me. I know more about Uber because Uber has been bearing the brunt of the regulatory issues that have been coming down on the ride-sharing industry. I just haven't heard as much about Lyft in the in the news but i'm sure they're dealing with some of these same ride sharing regulatory issues but i've been following uber pretty closely particularly because circa now pushes anything that has uber in the title (laughs) to me which is great thanks circa um so what's really interesting to me about this is that silicon valley talks about disrupting a lot like we're going to disrupt this industry we're going to make it better and a lot of times it's like yeah you're just part of that industry now like you're one offering of many (laughs) offerings and you might be the best offering but you're still not like removing other people's offerings that's not true with ride sharing there's a finite amount of people who are taking a finite amount of rides it doesn't scale the same way that a technology does and it can just live alongside another technology or software on someone's computer this is in some ways, I've seen it described as a literal zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Like someone's going to win. Someone's going to sit in a car because you can't sit in two cars at once. And so it's a really interesting situation where the values that Uber is espousing and Lyft as a good thing are values that other companies see as bad things. So they're diametrically opposed as to who is the better service. Right. One of the things that was interesting talking to the guy who had driven cabs is that the taxi companies were just caught entirely flat-footed. They've got nothing comparable yet. And as such, the disruption that's happening there is significant and profound. As you said, there are a limited number of drivers. There are a limited number of people to take rides. Though, as Ben Thompson pointed out, If this does herald or mark part of an ongoing shift in driving culture, the number of rides may go up substantially over the next few years. Uh, We'll we'll see how that plays out. If people start doing these kinds of things rather than driving, you know, that could be a pretty significant change. And Uber and to whatever extent they're able to lift as well want to drive that because that would make their businesses 
vastly more profitable. Whereas for a taxi company, you've got enormous regulatory burden because you're technically a professional driver. And of course, the taxi company wants Uber and Lyft to play by those rules too. And that's relatively reasonable. I think it's entirely reasonable. I mean, there have been early on, there were a lot of cases where like people who were doing Uber did bad things like got tickets or hit someone or things like that. Those stories existed. And so on at that point, people were calling for, you know, regulation and all that sort of thing. And so Uber has largely somehow, I'm not as familiar with how they did it, gotten those stories to not be in the news, whether they're not existing or they're able to subsume them in data that don't look interesting, whatever it is, those stories haven't been appearing as often and the focus has been more on the regulatory battles themselves as opposed to safety issues. Again, I don't know why that is, and partially I think that's probably the way that ride-sharing likes it. Um, but that's a there aren't as many, this person got hit by an Uber car, <laughs> or this person got sideswiped by a Lyft vehicle stories anymore. Some of that is probably just the increasing number of people driving them, and while in one sense that inclines you know, that there will be more accidents or whatever else. It also means that on the whole, you're getting into a wider pool of people driving, and that may include better drivers, especially as you're starting to see drivers moving from driving cabs, etc., because it's a better better work for, for, for them. Yeah. So it's interesting that on one level, we're always interested in individual people here at Winning Slowly, and we want to know what the effect is on individual people and from Chris's perspective and from my perspective, it seems like a pretty seamless sort of process yep. that has benefits for the individual worker and for the individual who's needing a ride. Um, you know, like you said before, there's not a clear, easy way to call a taxi via your phone <laughs> the same way that there is via an Uber app. And so on a very technological level, Uber is what it says it is. It's a more efficient process. Um, but if we think about it in terms of, you know, established industries, this is a little more complicated. South Korea won't let Uber be a part of South Korea because it fears that it will hurt small taxi companies, which I believe is a very reasonable fear. Uh, and so South Korea said, no Uber, we're going to protect the economy that we already have. Whereas Uber is thinking, but you're just protecting a bad economy right. and a bad experience, which is also true in terms of the technological availability that Uber has. And so that tension is the true problem of disruption. And that's something that even though we had all this change, we haven't seen a lot of technologies truly disrupt violently. Now you can go back and say there's plenty of long-term incremental disruption that happened in that you know, we have no more transcriptionists for executives who are right, dictating letters, um, or at least far, far fewer amounts. That was a long-term disruption of that industry, and those jobs are most likely not coming back. But there have been few instances as volatile where the people who are established and the people who are trying to disrupt are in such clear and public argument yeah. about the nature of what good transportation means. 
Yeah. And I think part of that is because you have direct competition here in a way that a lot of times disruption doesn't operate. A lot of times disruption comes in and provides a totally different way of doing things that mm -hmm. ends up just kind of making the old one look irrelevant after a while. Whereas here what's happening is you're doing exactly the same thing. You're just providing access to the service in a different way. And what you've got as a result is the old industry recognizing immediately this is a threat and fighting it very understandably. And of course, that industry has also had several decades now to watch this happen to, even if in slow motion, other industries like the music industry. And they're saying, no thanks. Or the book industry. The book industry is probably the closest comparison in that Amazon, for one, came through and pulverized its way through physical bookstores. And now ebooks are attempting to end up in some sort of symbiotic relationship with books but at some at a point earlier in the decade it looked like books might die and ebooks might be the primary way that people read now we know that it's a much more complicated situation than that and there's a lot of other factors other than i can hold a kindle and have a hundred books <laughs> it's much more complicated than that because that's true but there's also a lot of other factors and that's why i say that this is crystallized in the most distinct and yeah. obvious way and that there aren't that many factors involved here. There's not a whole lot of complexity once you get past the driver safety issue, which, again, has been regulated some way. Once you get past the driver safety issue, there's not a whole lot of moving parts, pun intended. And the thing that particularly caught our attention with this thing is that you know, from, like we said, from the individual side, it's great for basically everybody involved except the guys driving taxis right now. But, and this is a good thing about a general market solution like this, broadly speaking, as my ride with Eric demonstrated, the taxi driver has an out. He can very easily go work for Uber or Lyft. It gets a little more painful if you are a taxi company and that's an interesting distinction that is easy to overlook here the individual guy driving the car probably doesn't care that much whether he's driving a yellow cab or a black cab or he's driving his own car for lyft or uber that isn't that significant a factor for him or her unless there is the need to buy a car to supply it but at the end of the day there's a lot more freedom in the new approach to the market for the individual. Now, so far, we've been talking in terms that are relatively positive. But, well, much as I enjoyed those rides, there are maybe some things to be skeptical about with this nonetheless. Yep. I mean, we can definitely be skeptical from the corporation standpoint and be in sympathy with taxi cab companies mm -hmm. that were providing a very good service, all things considered. Um, and then, you know, things happened like, so that's <laughs> like the a internet and apps. Yeah. That's, that's a bummer. So solidarity for businesses that didn't expect this to happen to them, but also on the individual side, there are some issues as well. Right. Uber has been involved in any number of high profile flubs to put it as nicely as possible and really, really mess some things up. One, they're approach to the regulation question at a company-wide level has often been, screw regulation, we're going to show up here whether you like it or not. Which... Also known as, what up, we're the internet. 
Right. Basically <laughs> importing Silicon Valley arrogance to an industry that actually is regulated pretty tightly because driver safety is an issue. And, well, places like New York City have taken an issue with that, as well as with other things doing similar. You'll see similar stories about the ongoing disruption of the hotel industry by Airbnb, which looks very similar to this in some ways. Although that has a lot of complexities and a lot yes. more moving parts yes. than uh, than this particular issue, in my opinion. I, oh, agreed. My point is simply that there's a pretty strong analogy in terms right. of the regulation side of it. Right. A sort of crowdsourced model mm -hmm. versus a regulatory model. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Uber has also been known to play hardball in the way it gets drivers. They are uh, not beyond poaching from Lyft in really aggressive ways, even so much as seeding fake rides to try to get people who are driving for Lyft to drive for Uber. So there's a lot of competition in this space for, again, what we said was a zero-sum game, finite number of drivers, finite number of riders. And so there's a lot of kind of smarmy business practices yeah. that aren't necessarily illegal because, again, nothing is regulated very hard at this point, but are definitely some sort of unethical or weirdly ethical. <laughs> yeah, even if they're not wrong, they're just kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. It's <laughs> the word I'm looking for. They're gross. <laughs> uh, interestingly, talking to Muhammad, the guy who drove my Lyft car, he said in part because of those kinds of things and the way that Uber is making some of those moves, apparently it's guaranteeing certain hourly payout to drivers and so on. He doesn't know anyone who's driving Lyft who isn't also driving Uber. By contrast, the guy talked to Eric, who was driving the Uber I took, did not drive Lyft. And the impression I got is most folks who are driving Uber are not driving Lyft as well. Yeah. So Uber is trying really hard and is somewhat successful at squashing the competition. Right. Now, squashing the competition is nothing new to Silicon Valley. That's pretty much what they live for. But there are also some issues beyond, like, vulturous business practices, <laughs> which... You know, if you've been reading our what listening to our episodes over the last three seasons, you that's pretty much par for the course um, in terms of Silicon Valley and in terms of the ways that businesses operate in what they perceive as zero sum industries. One of the things that's notable about that is Uber pitches themselves as coming in and rescuing people from the monopoly of taxis, and in a sense, they're right. Taxis have not kept up with the times in part because they haven't had to. They've had basically, via regulatory capture, a fairly stable, if not quite monopolistic, pretty a close, static, a very a static, static system. Yeah. And Uber's coming in and Lyft is coming in and they're, well, they're adding more competition. They're adding approaches that those other companies haven't taken, and they're pitching themselves as the ones who will save you from this static and sometimes nearly monopolistic market. But, of course, if they get their goal, which in Uber's case at least is very clearly we want to own all of it, and Lyft's World probably, domination, yeah, very literally. Yeah. Lyft's probably is too. They just haven't been quite as crassly explicit about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if they pull that off, well, you're going to end up in another monopolistic situation, and that's problematic. Particularly because of if they become the monopoly and some other business comes along and starts to undercut them with a more efficient service for however they do it, they're going to be 
that company may be painting themselves as saving people from the monopoly of Uber, and it's it's a cycle. And so trying to resist that monopolistic language before you become a monopoly is an important thing to do, in in our opinion. Yeah, and something we've talked about before. You have a responsibility as an up-and-coming company, maybe not to avoid crushing your competitors, but to behave ethically along the way. Uh, At some point, you can't keep your competitors from failing, but you you can do things well instead of poorly. You can be less smarmy. Yeah, and you can consider how you're positioning your business and how your goals are being communicated to the public. So if your goal is to be the only ride-sharing company (laughs) and you're trying to say to people that you're trying to save people from a monopolistic structure, that's just double talk. Like you're – you know, it's true on on the one hand, but it doesn't jive with the nature of what you're actually trying to do. And right. so that sort of corporate doublespeak is reviled uh, in the Internet. If you've been to the Internet, hello. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so starting early, not doing that sort of doublespeak is important. If you're a startup, that's one car or a million. The other thing that's, I think, a big issue is the way Uber has handled places, or rather, especially early on, failed to handle potential danger situations. There have been a couple high-profile cases where drivers assaulted passengers and so on, and while Uber has responded to those, it's pretty clear that there weren't good systems in place to help prevent those kinds of things, especially early on. Yeah, and and there were some high-profile ones in other countries recently. Yeah. So. Yeah, even within the last month or two, I think there was a very high-profile one in India, which, of course, has right. massive problems with this culturally right now anyway. Right. And Uber coming in and just sort of blasé going in without thinking about that, it led to one of these things happening. Now, of course, people are going to do wicked things regardless, but as a company going in, you're responsible to consider possible consequences of your actions. Are you empowering parts of a culture that are reprehensible? If so, you need to find a way to mitigate that risk and to counter that, not only for the good of your company's image, though sure, it will have that effect, but just because you're morally and ethically responsible to the people you're serving. Full stop. Yeah, totally. And that's something that Again, they seem to have developed some strategies for at least keeping it out of the news, which doesn't mean that they haven't developed strategy. Doesn't mean that they've developed strategies to actually deal with it. Um, and so, there's definitely when you're dealing with a sort of distributed network that isn't tightly regulated from inside the company much less outside from you know governmental regulatory agencies there is vetting there is a process that people go through at least that's what i've read i can't vouch for its existence but yeah both muhammad and eric confirmed that they had background checks they had to pass so there's some at least right and so that's an important element that needs to continue to exist but yeah it's tough when you're dealing with a system that is n- built on the idea that you're not a nine to five Mm. permanent member of the company. Yeah. And that's one thing that, you know, we haven't expressly talked about is how this works. You just basically sign up to be a driver, pass a background check, and you work when you want to work. You flip the switch on your app that says I'm available, and then you go pick people up. 
and that's it. There isn't, unlike your traditional taxi company, a central coordinator managing all of it. It's just, hey, there's a lift in your area. You click, I want to take a lift, and the lift driver says, yep, okay, and comes, and now you're off the list of potential riders, and she's off the list of potential drivers, and you're off to the races. Because it is mm-hmm. decentralized, it's powerful yep. in the way that network situations can be. But it's also dangerous in the way that network situations can be because there is no central control over it. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting is that even though there isn't a central location, there is a central data hub. There is a set of places where Uber is saying, we have all the data for these particular riders and drivers, and they are getting into that business of big data selling. Alas. Which, again, this is something we've talked about often. You... If you're going to use users' data, that needs to be clear. And while I skimmed down through the uh, terms of use agreement in the apps when I signed up for them, I didn't manage to pick that part out. And granted that I wasn't looking perhaps as closely as I needed to, but it's hard to sort through that legalese, and it's not always obvious what user data means. But as a friend of mine on app.net passed across my feed this morning even as we were prepping for the show uber selling this data to other people now your your travel info and your account info is being handed around because it's profitable to uber to do so would i be particularly surprised to find the same of lyft nope nope and and again i think there's an opportunity here for companies that want to behave more ethically more responsibly to treat their users and their users data with more respect that Uber certainly isn't taking, I can't say one way or the other, for Lyft. And and maybe Lyft can do that, in which case I would be a lot more inclined to support Lyft. But I don't know. Yeah, we there's so much that we don't know about ride sharing. And that works partially, well, it in, in some ways it works in ride sharing's favor, and in some ways it works against. I mean, obviously taxi companies are going to be resistant to this idea that someone is coming in with little regulation and no set professional standards and just taking over. But at the same time, other more loosely regulated areas might be, okay, let's do this until it doesn't have a problem, until it has a problem. And there are upsides and downsides to both of those. Yeah. The upside is the freer market is able to sort things out in a lot of cases. The downside is that you know, transportation like this is risky, and there's a sense in which regulating it makes some sense. So there's a trade-off there, right. and there's a trade-off in a lot of industries where you want as free a market as you can, and the government's role really ought to be protecting the freedom of the market to operate properly. But there's also a sense in which the government and the people using the services and the people providing services are all obligated to do so in a way that is good not only for a bottom line, but for Right. really for the people involved. Right. There has to be some protection set up against the worst excesses. And yeah. deciding what the worst excesses are is a complicated and thorny matter that makes political divides out of everywhere. But that's really <laughs> what I think the government is supposed to be able to do is protect the free market except for the worst excesses. And by negating or regulating away the worst excesses like drawing people away from that edge in general so deterring from bad practices by outlawing the worst ones now do we know that corporations will toe that line as much as they can sometimes they will 
lots of times they will but the goal the ideal situation for you know chris and i is that there wouldn't be excesses and abuses and the nature of having delineated what those excesses are and what those abuses are would allow companies to say okay that's the sort of thing that we won't do and then move away from that type of activity is that an ideal world you betcha still we think it's worth working towards so before you go we have another regrettable incident of racism to report from our very doorstep uh, racism and sexism racism and sexism from our very doorstep this this week um, again, I'm an instructor at North Carolina State University, and uh, a campus has been disbanded um, for three years based on a racist and sexist book that was found that was associated with Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity here, and it's uh, it's just sad and frustrating. One of the things we were talking about that we think is important to take away, we think the university made the right response. But one of the things that goes around in situations like this, it came up a lot in the quote-unquote Gamergate stuff that we briefly touched on last season, you'll often hear the, well, not all fraternities, and not all guys in fraternities. And you know what? That's true. But saying not all is often an excuse to avoid doing it. You know what? Not all guys in fraternities are racist. Not all fraternities have this problem, almost certainly. But we're seeing a pattern, and when there's a pattern, not all is not a good enough excuse. Some and a systemic issue means we need to address it, and we need to address it systematically so that we can deal with the issues. People's brokenness does not express itself only in individual ways. It affects the systems we live in as well. And so when you hear not all, sometimes people are saying, guys, that's not me. I just want you to know I'm on your side. And that's good. But sometimes... Yeah, that's great. We're hugely in favor of that. But sometimes people are using it as an excuse to say, well, this isn't really a problem because it's not a problem in every single instance. And that's not true. Instead, what we ought to say is, no, not all, but enough. Let's deal with it. Right. So this was another evil instance and our hearts and emotions and uh, grievances go out to the affected communities both of uh, minorities and of women and we hope and pray that this ends indeed the music this week was it's quiet now by mondragore don't use their music without permission um, we did secure permission but you can download it legally at uh, his website you'll be able to find a link in the show notes which may be available in whatever app you're using to listen to this but are also available at winningslowly.org you can follow us at at winning slowly on twitter and you can follow each of our own personal accounts at at chris Kreicho and at s caradini and yes we do pronounce that at scaradini you can also subscribe to the show on itunes or your favorite podcast app until next time thanks for listening most intimidating chins in the business.
pop filter in the correct location, all the things in the correct location, active noise cancellation in the whatchamacallums, all the things are green and go. Hello? Can you hear me? Oh yeah, I uh, accidentally disabled my speakers instead of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah.